Welcome back, weavers. Welcome to the American Tapestry Project, We Tell Ourselves Stories. And to you who are first-time listeners, welcome to the American Tapestry Project. My name is Andrew Roth. I'm a scholar in residence at the Jefferson Educational Society. The American Tapestry Project seeks to discover the American story, whether or not there is such a thing, and why it's important to get some sort of common understanding about the American story, maybe even, maybe even existentially important as in threatening whether or not the great American experiment in freedom, equality, and opportunity survives. Today's episode, Freedom at Home and Abroad. Before we begin, a couple of housekeeping notes. Throughout the program, I'll interject music. This land is your land, and this land is my land, and the California... New York Island. I'll interject music like Woody Guthrie to break up simply listening to the sound of my voice. But the music is also a commentary on the topic of the moment. Music as editorial aside, so to speak. And occasionally we'll be interrupted by the sound of an old-fashioned school bell. To signal what I call a pedantic aside. We'll try to keep the pedantry at a minimum, but will signal the insertion of a special topic. Today, for example, we'll ask who was Tom Paine, who was Erie's own Captain Gridley, and maybe one or two more. As we heard in the first two episodes, which can be found on WQLN's website and on NPR One, Spotify, and Google, there may never have been any agreement over what constitutes the American story. Americans have been squabbling over what it means to be an American since almost the beginning, maybe even before the beginning because Virginia Cavaliers and New England Puritans had two very different views about how the world should be organized. In some sense, we're still having their argument. But, as we explored in episode number one, Prelude, America in 1968, since the 1960s, the roots go back much deeper, but since the 1960s, Americans have been fighting. Fighting sounds too strong, so let's say arguing, contending. Yes, contending. Americans have been engaging in a contentious debate about what America means. Ever since Pat Buchanan declared at the 1992 Republican National Convention that there was a culture war in America for the soul of America, American politics at the national level, and increasingly at the local level, has not been about public policy, but about cultural issues defining America. These past 30, 50 years, American politics has increasingly not been about this tax policy or that tax policy, not been about whether to build Road X or whether to fund NASA. Yes, all of those issues, not to mention health care and education funding. All of those issues have been contended, argued, and fought over. But they have either taken a backseat to or been proxies for cultural issues defining American society. Policy issues can be debated rationally, or at least most of the time they can be debated rationally. But cultural issues, cultural issues are something else. They invoke powerful emotional responses, short-circuiting rational analysis and discussion. Why? Because cultural issues are about values, attitudes, and beliefs. Cultural issues are about the things, the values, attitudes, and beliefs that define you as a person, that not only define you, but define the groups to which you belong, from at the most basic level, the family, to at the highest level, the nation. In fact, whether or not the nation is the highest, the most general, the largest group to which you belong, is one of the culture war's most passionate topics. Several of the culture war's major themes are globalization and rising cosmopolitanism. 
A forsaking of bedrock American values symbolized by small towns and a simpler, more virtuous rural America. Forsaking that for the city with its cultural diversity, teeming streets and its dynamic energy of change. Sixty years ago, Norman Mailer, in a brilliant essay, Superman Comes to the Supermarket, Mailer made a shrewd observation about the town versus country split in American politics. In American life, Mailer said, the unspoken war of the century has taken place between the city and the small town. The city, which is dynamic, orgiastic, unsettling, explosive, and accelerating to the psyche. The small town, which is rooted, narrow, cautious, implanted in the life logic of the family. The need of the city is to accelerate growth. The pride of the small town is to retard it. That was Mailer in 1960. Sixty years later, the city versus town divide still defines our politics. One only need look at the presidential race with its flyover country versus coastal elites or Erie County's last county executive election back in 2017, decided by 307 votes, divided almost evenly between Metro Erie and the county south of I-90. So, the culture wars are about who you are as a person and what America is as a society. The topics transcend reason and go to the emotional heart of the heart of the matter, because these topics are about who you are, about who we as Americans are, and what we value and believe. And how do we tell ourselves who we are, where we came from, how should we live and where we're going? How do we tell ourselves what our destiny is? As we learned in episode two, we tell ourselves stories, we make sense of our experience by telling stories about our experience. One of the most important stories people tell themselves is their history where they came from, who they are, what they value, how they got to now and where and to what destiny their history might lead them. History does not repeat itself, but as some wag said, it does rhyme. In episode number two, we spent some time talking about what history is, about which Sam Cooke said, Don't know much about history. It probably all sounded very academic, but recent events demonstrate that history is important. Because it is history. Not only, of course. Literature has a role, as does music, film, and the visual arts. But it is history that tells the story of a people. Where they came from. Who they are. How they got to now and where they might be going. So, one of the skirmishes in the culture wars is about whose story of America, whose history of America is the right one. Or, in Jill Lepore's parlance, which of those histories is most consistent with the evidence? Is it George Bancroft's, the father of American history? whose first comprehensive history argued that the American political system was the finest yet devised by the mind of man? Or is it Francis Parkman's magisterial multi-volume France and England in North America, which essentially saw early American history as the triumph of Anglo-Protestantism over Gallic Catholicism? Or is it Charles and Mary Beard's The Rise of American Civilization, which saw the history of America almost exclusively in economic terms? Or is it Howard Zinn's The People's History of the United States, which told the tales your junior high teacher omitted about all the times America failed to live up to its ideals? Or, well, there are a lot of options. The point is, the point is, is that there are more than a few histories of America, each with its own perspective, each helping to sharpen our focus, each helping us more clearly see the American landscape. The recent flap over the New York Times 1619 project demonstrates, demonstrates that this is not simply a school day argument. 
1619 project asserts that the real history of America began with the arrival with the arrival of the first African Americans at Jamestown in 1619, setting in motion America's original sin of slavery, a phrase first used, by the way, by James Madison, and the tortured history of slavery's aftermath, King Cotton, the Civil War, Reconstruction, the Lost Cause, Jim Crow, lynch culture, the Ku Klux Klan, the Civil Rights Movement of the mid-20th century, and now Black Lives Matter. The accuracy of that 1619 project has been assailed by historians, both progressive and conservative. Curiously, although the Times won a Pulitzer Prize for it, the most recent versions revise the assertion about it being the beginning of American story, about being the beginning of the American story, and protecting slavery as the primary cause of the American Revolution. The revision now says that it was a primary reason for some of the founders, that is, the Southerners, for their support of the American Revolution, but not the only reason. Next month, in Freedom's Fault Lines, Tales of Race and Gender, we'll come back to 1619. But, for now, it has added fuel to the culture war fires. For, in this presidential election year, it has prompted President Trump to form the 1776 Commission teaching the miracle of American history, promoting patriotic education about the virtues of America's founding. At this stage, not much has been done, but the commission aims at correcting the way American history is currently taught. In other words, history is to be hagiographic, a big, fancy word for excessively flattering and not necessarily accurate. It's a complicated topic. Why is any of this important? Because history is a key, maybe the key. History is a key in building a people's culture. The culture wars are in many ways an argument about whose history, whose story is the story of America. The American Tapestry Project seeks to weave together the many stories of the American experience into a tapestry of America. What are its threads? The warp threads holding it all together are the story of freedom, equality, and opportunity, the ongoing experiment in self-government, and the fusing of many peoples from many places into a people, the American people. The weft threads, the stories within the stories, the stories within the stories of the American experience are, well, today's topic, freedom at home and abroad. In November, freedom's fault lines, tales of race and gender. In December, we'll look at the American dream, success stories of a hustling, enterprising people. And in January, the immigrant's tale and the fusion thread. Today, freedom at home and abroad. Freedom is just another word for nothing left. Janice says freedom means having nothing left to lose, nothing to inhibit your ability to act, nothing to constrain or restrict you. What, however, are some other definitions? What does liberty mean? What does freedom mean? Liberty. Well, it's a noun. The dictionary, it says it means any or all of the following. Freedom from arbitrary or despotic government control. Freedom from external or foreign rule. Freedom from control, interference, obligation, restriction, hampering conditions. Freedom from restrictions on the right of doing, thinking, speaking. Freedom from captivity, confinement, or physical restraint. You'll notice that in all of these, liberty states a negative, the absence of coercion or constraint. But what does freedom mean? Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. 
Well, freedom is also a noun, the state of being free, or at liberty rather than under physical constraint. Freedom means exemption from external control, the power to determine action without restraint, political or national independence, personal liberty, a general exemption or immunity, civil liberty, the right to enjoy all the privileges or special rights of citizenship. In short, then, liberty is the absence of coercive restraint resulting in the freedom to choose. The two terms, frequently used as synonyms, really mean two ever so slightly different things. Isaiah Berlin, the eminent Oxford philosopher, said it best in his two concepts of liberty. Positive freedom may be understood as self-mastery, the right to choose, most specifically, the right to choose who governs one society. More generally, the right to choose, well, the right to choose whatever. Negative freedom, or liberty, is the absence of coercion. Liberty, in the negative sense, involves an answer to the question, to what extent are people free to choose to do, to do what they want to do? So, liberty and freedom, ideas we argue about and some have died so we can enjoy, liberty and freedom work in tandem. Liberty is the absence of constraint, resulting in the freedom to choose. Americans take this very seriously. Witness New Hampshire's license plate motto, Live Free or Die, written by General John Stark in 1809. Really short, pedantic aside. I was born in Stark County, Ohio, which was named after General Stark, the hero of the Revolutionary War, Battle of Bennington, enabling Benedict Arnold and Horatio Gates to defeat the British at the Battle of Saratoga. As we will discover, liberty and freedom have been defined differently by different groups at different times in American history. In fact, it can be sobering to revisit just how many different types of unfreedom have existed in American history. For example, in colonial Virginia in the 17th century, the focus of the 1619 Project, most people were not free in any sense of the word you or I would recognize. They were indentured servants, captive Native Americans held in a proto-slavery, poor settlers at the mercy, in the 17th century parlance, at the mercy of their betters, and a tiny handful of gentry whose freedom of action looked like what you and I might, might consider freedom or liberty. And even amongst those who were free, there were different understandings of what that meant and what that freed one to do and what obligations that freedom imposed. It's important to remember that freedom imposes obligations. It is not a license to just do as you damn well please. In his Elbian Seed, Four British Folkways in America, David Hackett Fisher analyzed four different notions of liberty and freedom and the obligations they entailed in different regions of colonial America that still resonate in American society today. First, ordered liberty. New England Puritans pursued ordered liberty, or community self-governance, which could impose substantial restrictions on individual freedom of action or conscience. It imposed the obligation to care for the community and for your fellow citizens. In some ways, it explains, not entirely, but in some ways, it explains the more or less progressive nature of New England politics prevailing, even in 2020, and in the areas settled by those who emigrated out of New England into western New York, northeastern Ohio, and the upper Midwest. Then, Fisher has hegemonic liberty. 
Southern Cavaliers believed in a status system in which liberty was a jealously guarded aristocratic privilege that entitled some men to rule the lives of others. On the plus side, this resulted in the noblesse oblige that inspired Virginians like Jefferson, Washington, Madison, and Mason to support freedom's quest. On the downside, this lingering sense of oligarchic privilege still contaminates American politics, with some believing it their right to govern and others their duty to be governed. Historian Heather Cox Richardson says this struggle between oligarchy and equality is the defining characteristic of American history. I am not sure I agree with her, but as we will see, it is certainly a major thread in the American tapestry. Then there was reciprocal liberty. Delaware Valley Quakers subscribed to a system in which every person was recognized as a fellow child of God, entitled to self-determination and freedom of conscience. This respect for the individual is in the marrow, is in the DNA of American values. Lastly, Fisher identifies natural liberty. The largest group of British immigrants, the borderlanders, often called Scotch-Irish, who adhered to a natural liberty, a visceral, sometimes violent, defense of clan and self. Their banner, their slogan, was the flag that proclaimed, Don't tread on me. They settled the backwoods of Pennsylvania, the mountains of western Virginia, western Carolina, and then Kentucky and Tennessee, from which they moved north and west into Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, and then south into Texas. Their defiant anti-government ethos became a major threat in the American tapestry. It echoes today in Tea Party and right-wing anti-government militancy. While hegemonic liberty is a subdued chord in today's politics, much of the current American political strife is a struggle between the heirs of the Puritans' ordered liberty and the reciprocal liberty of the Middle States on one side, and the heirs of the borderlanders' natural liberty on the other. seen, liberty and freedom have meant different things at different times and different places in America. One of the best summaries of these shifting American notions of liberty and freedom comes from Eric Foner. In his The Story of American Freedom, Foner argues that freedom must be understood within three aspects of meaning, its shifting definition, its understanding in different contexts, and its boundaries, who is included, who is excluded. Foner categorized freedom as freedom of political participation which leads to civil liberties, protecting individuals from authority, to the personal freedom enabling one to make choices free from outside coercion, to economic freedom. Ebbing and flowing over the course of history, freedom-shifting meetings were driven by changing social conditions, particularly public institutions. Lastly, freedom's exclusions, those who were denied freedom's benefits, the unfree, are central to defining who is free to enjoy freedom's benefits. The identification of the unfree was, still is, often made along the lines of class, race, and gender. If, as Martin Luther King Jr. and John Meacham attest, the arc of the moral universe, the arc of American history, bends towards justice, then Foner demonstrates that this is not a preordained ending, for freedom's progress in America has been one of fits and starts, has been one of contradictions and limitations. More importantly, as Foner notes, those excluded as they fought for inclusion, those excluded co-opted the language of freedom to assert their goals, from abolitionists to women suffragists. They made their claim for freedom based on America's ideals, based on the American creed. Moving through American history, 
Foner examines the tensions between freedom's expansion and those who would constrict it. More subtly than the 1619 Project, Foner uses the American Revolution to show how, to show how asserting freedom simultaneously entrenched slavery. In the early Republic, free institutions such as the popular press and white male suffrage greatly expanded, using slavery as a negative to which they would not submit. Not being a slave became a way to define freedom. In the early 19th century, Foner contrasts the Whig view, the Whig view of positive freedom, the freedom to actively improve oneself in society, and the Jacksonian view of negative freedom, the classic expression of natural liberty, protection from outside coercion, particularly from the government. During this period, individualism increased and race began to replace class as the major difference between the free and the unfree. In Foner's analysis, the Civil War's two major consequences were the expanding power of the federal government to guarantee freedom and citizenship increasingly being defined in terms of equality before the law. the language of freedom the excluded have always used to fight for their inclusion. It is the American creed, a phrase first coined by Gunnar Myrdal, a Swedish economist and sociologist. Myrdal is best known in America for his 1944 study of race relations. An optimist, Myrdal thought America's democratic governance guaranteed Americans would solve their racial issues. How? By appealing to the American creed. American Creed, as Myrdal coined it, is universally recognized as a second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. If the job of leadership is to provide a guiding vision, then the Declaration of Independence is that guiding vision. It has inspired those seeking inclusion in American freedom, and it has been denied by those who would exclude. On the side of inclusion, Jefferson, Lincoln, both Roosevelt's, Truman, and others. On the side of exclusion, well, there are tragically many, but most notoriously the Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens' cornerstone speech, and the Southern Confederacy's own Constitution, which explicitly rejected it. What is the American Creed? It's the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Self-evident. Jefferson had originally written Sacred and Undeniable. It was Benjamin Franklin who amended it to self-evident. Men are created equal. They did not mean all men. They meant white landowners. They excluded blacks and women and Native Americans. This is the we we keep expanding. This is the pronoun at the heart of inclusion, century-long struggle with exclusion. Pursuit of happiness. They did not mean some mindless fantasy land pursuit of pleasure, but rather something like Mara, but rather something like Maslow's sense of self-fulfillment, or, more prosaically, like the old army ad, the right to attempt to become all you can be. This creed, this American creed, this creed is what America stands for. 
battered as it might be, I think the creed still holds. Freedom, equality, and opportunity, and a quest for greater inclusiveness in we, the people, are two of the American tapestry's foundational threads. Then the third is the ongoing experiment in self-government, which in the 18th century was revolutionary. Writ large, that is in the broadest strokes, there have been at least three eras in America's experiment in self-government, the Confederation Congress, the U.S. Constitution pre-Civil War, the U.S. Constitution post-Civil War. Obviously, each of those eras can be subdivided. Today, we're just going to look at three broad strokes, the Articles of Confederation, the U.S. Constitution pre-Civil War, the U.S. Constitution post-Civil War, sometimes called the Second American Revolution. The Articles of Confederation. Proposed at the Second Continental Congress in 1776, they were not ratified until March 1, 1781. The revolution was almost over. Right at the beginning, an argument that comes down to current politics raised its head. But ironically, the roles, or at least the labels, used to describe the contending parties were the reverse of 21st century politics. For, in 1776, the conservatives favored a strong central government, and the radicals favored strong state governments. Regardless of labels, sectionalism versus nationalism reared its head, and so it has been ever since, as we argue the role of the individual states and the consolidated national government. The article's weakness, which required either supermajority or unanimous votes on most issues, and reserved the right of taxation to the states, almost jeopardized the winning of the American Revolution. For example, Washington's diaries and letters teem with letters exhorting the Congress to raise funds for the Continental Army. His difficulty getting funding led Washington to be a strong advocate for a powerful central government able to tax and raise revenue independent of the states. In fact, it was the weakness of the Confederation Congress that led Alexander Hamilton and James Madison to call the Annapolis Convention in 1786 to amend the Articles. When no quorum arrived in Annapolis, they engineered a second convention in Philadelphia in 1787 to revise the Articles. The Confederation Congress had at least one great accomplishment. Of course, they did win the Revolutionary War. But they had at least one other great accomplishment, the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which organized the Northwest Territory beyond the Appalachian Mountains. Britain had ceded this territory in the Treaty of Paris in 1783, ending the Revolutionary War. The Ordinance organized the area into separate territories, provided the guidelines for their eventual admission of states, and forever outlawed slavery from the lands of the Northwest Territory, guaranteed freedom of religion and civil liberty, and said in Article 3 that religion, morality, and knowledge, being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and means of education shall forever be encouraged. Ultimately, six states emerged from the Northwest Territory, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. But most importantly, Slavery shall be forever outlawed. With that phrase, the Northwest Ordinance set in motion the wave that would crest and break in 1861. In Democracy in America, Alexis de Tocqueville described his experience on an Ohio River boat passing Marietta, Ohio in the 1830s. In the free north to his right, as he headed west, he found bustling commerce, industry, and an increasing prosperity. <laughs> 
To his left, to the southward, he found lassitude and a stilted agrarianism weighted down by the spirit-killer slavery. The Articles of Confederation and their weakness, however, were unable to regulate interstate commerce, resulting in Hamilton and Madison seeking that Annapolis Convention I mentioned a few moments ago. When they failed to get a quorum, they then organized a meeting in Philadelphia beginning in May 1787, which has been called the Miracle in Philadelphia. Like the ill-fated Annapolis Convention in 1786, the Philadelphia Conclave was to be a meeting of commissioners to remedy defects of the federal government. Of course, what they did was to scrap the Articles of Confederation entirely and replace them with a new, more tightly federated national government. The Constitutional Convention was a work of political genius conducted behind closed doors whose participants were sworn to secrecy. To say it would be impossible to do it today in the age of sunshine laws and the Freedom of Information Act opens up all sorts of interesting discussion points. We'll leave those for future episodes. In the Constitutional Convention debates themselves, as detailed in James Madison's meticulous notes and in the ratifying debates that followed, issues percolating in contemporary 21st century politics first surfaced. There's not time to detail all of the debate on the drafting of the Constitution, but in short, there were four key issues. How powerful would the new national government be? In fact, would it even be a national government or just a tighter confederation of sovereign states? How would it be structured, the famous checks and balances? What was the role of the chief magistrate, as the president was first described? And if the southern colonies were to be persuaded to join, what was to be done with the tormenting question of slavery? We'll take up the question of how powerful the new government was to be in a minute when we survey the ratifying debates. First, however, the structure of the new government. Madison proposed the Virginia Plan, which provided for a legislature of two houses with proportional representation in each, and executive and judicial branches to be chosen by the legislature. This immediately aroused the suspicion of the smaller states, for they feared they would always be outvoted. William Patterson proposed what came to be known as the New Jersey Plan, in which there would be one legislative house in which each state had one vote, similar to the Articles of Confederation. The large states opposed this, which led to Roger Sherman and Oliver Ellsworth proposing the Connecticut Compromise, balancing the interests of the small and the large states. This provided for the government we now have, a bicameral, two-house legislature, the upper house, the Senate, would have equal representation from each state, and the lower house, the House of Representatives, would have a representation based on a state's population. And, well, it demonstrates the essence of democratic, that's small d, democratic politics, the art of compromise. Here we are today with California and its almost 40 million people and two senators, and Wyoming with 500,000 people and two senators, and endless state-based squabbles over gerrymandering house districts to favor rural areas at the expense of burgeoning cities, or vice versa. How did the founders see the presidency? They knew they didn't want a king, they had just gotten rid of one, but they didn't know what a president was or did. They wanted an executive who would provide effective and coherent leadership, but that could not evolve, devolve, into a tyranny. Article 2 of the Constitution outlines the president's duties, qualifications, etc. They left it vague because they trusted Washington not to usurp power. Washington, in effect, created the presidency by the precedence of his actions. The founders assumed the legislature would be the most powerful branch, but 
Over the course of American history, the legislature has ceded power to the presidency, one of the chief, if not the chief, points of contention in American politics since the end of World War II. I looked to the South, and I looked to the West, and I saw slavery a-comin', with four northern doe faces hitched up in front, driving freedom to the other side of Jordan. Then take off your coats and roll up your sleeves. Slavery is a hard foe to battle. Then take off your coats and roll up your sleeves. Oh, slavery is a hard foe to battle, I believe. William Lloyd Garrison, the great abolitionist, called the U.S. Constitution a slavery document. In its original version, it was. One cannot argue against that statement, although the word slavery is never mentioned. Three articles in the U.S. Constitution, as adopted in 1789, provided for slavery's maintenance in order to draw the southern colonies into the new nation. They are Article 1, Section 2, the Three-Fifths Clause, which did not count African Americans as three-fifths of a person, but said a state's population could include three-fifths of its slave population for determining the number of its representatives in the lower house. Granted, that's splitting a very fine hair, the unintended practical consequence was to give control of the legislature to the southern states. Article 1, Section 9 abolished the slave trade in 1808. No new slaves could be imported into the United States. The founders thought slavery would wither away. As we shall see, as we know, they were wrong. Article 4, Section 2, the Fugitive Slave Clause, required authorities in non-slave states to apprehend and return to their masters escaped and runaway slaves. The strengthening of this clause in the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 would become a direct cause of the Civil War. Who wrote the Constitution's preamble and gave us We the People? Perhaps the most colorful of all the Founding Fathers, Governor Morris, an elegant stylist, was one of a committee of five charged with polishing the final document. Since he thought the document could not just begin with Article I, he wrote the preamble as a vision statement for the new nation and gave us the words, We the People. Scion of a wealthy family whose estate, Morrisania, is now the Bronx in New York City, Morris's mother and brother were ardent loyalists. His mother thought he would ruin the family with his revolutionary activities. A notorious rake, an 18th century word for womanizer, Morris lost a leg in a carriage accident during an alleged tryst with another man's wife. The founders were not all dull old men. At the Constitutional Convention, Morris was the most vocal of all the founders, speaking a total of 173 times, more than any other delegate. A strong advocate for religious freedom, Morris also strongly condemned slavery. Richard Brookheiser, in his Gentleman Revolutionary, Governor Morris, the rake who wrote the Constitution, tells the story. Historians, Brookheiser says, still argue whether Morris entirely realized the impact of his editing of the draft preamble's wording. In particular, giving to the people, and not to the 13 states, both the credit and the power to create the new government. The original draft version read, We the people of the states, and then named each of them. Morris revised it to read, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America.
Patrick Henry, he of give me liberty or give me death, and a prominent anti-federalist, attacked the words, we the people. He attacked them during a debate with James Madison at the Virginia Convention to approve the Constitution. Who authorized them to speak the language of we the people instead of we the states, Henry thundered. Madison countered that government should be established by the people. The debate continues today. Who exactly are the people? After an eventful life in France and then again in America, where he served a term as a senator from New York, Morris died in 1816 at the age of 64. The debate on the Constitution was interesting, to say the least. As Patrick Henry's challenge attacking we the people suggest, the ratification of the new Constitution was a close-run thing. The debates touched on numerous issues, but the prime question was, and still is, how strong, how powerful a central government was and is needed. Supporters of the new Constitution included Hamilton, Madison, Jay Washington, and others. They were nationalists who thought the states needed to be clearly subordinate to the central government. In a slick rhetorical ploy, they called themselves Federalists. Their opponents, who really were Federalists, were boxed in and called themselves Anti-Federalists. They included Patrick Henry, George Mason, Samuel Adams, DeWitt Clinton, and others, and all of them feared the consolidating power of the new Constitution. And that question, consolidation, centralization, focuses precisely on the relationship between the states ceding some of their sovereignty to the new national government. The key question, how much? It is the question of American politics, and it hinges, it balances, on two things. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, the Necessary and Proper Clause, which says, To make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States. Hamilton used it in the 1790s to justify the Bank of the United States, and FDR and others used it as a rationale for the extension of federal power. And then, of course, there's the Tenth Amendment, which says, much the opposite in some ways, the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people, which debate, down to today, those who in the anti-federalist spirit want to constrain national power, they invoke that in the name of states' rights, whether Californians wanting their own stricter vehicle admission standards or those in other states who would limit some people's right to vote, down to today, the tension between those two aspects of the Constitution are American politics. The rest, as is said, are only details. From Lincoln at Gettysburg, who rallied the Declaration of Independence into the national cause, saying, A nation, note, nation, not confederacy, a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition, all men are created equal. And the work of what is sometimes called the unfinished Second American Revolution, the great post-Civil War amendments, the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, the 14th Amendment, birthright citizenship and equal protection under the law, the Due Process Clause, the 15th Amendment, the right of freedmen, the former slaves, to vote, and the 19th Amendment, that comes later, of course, much later, the 19th Amendment, women's right to vote ratified 100 years ago in August 1920. We'll explore all of these next month in Freedom's Fault Lines, Tales of Race and Gender. (music) 
So, if that is the story of freedom's birth and continuing development, how was it seen at home and abroad? What was its impact? Well, the very brief version is that there are two intertwined impacts, reactions, outcomes, philosophical and political spins on this new birth of freedom in the forests of North America, this American revolution and its constitutional offspring. They are American universalism and American exceptionalism. American universalism is that strain of thought that believed what was happening in America impacted the entire world. And because of that, America was exceptional. Americans began, again, almost from the beginning, to see themselves, to believe themselves, exceptional, somehow set apart and above the rest of the world's nations. As politicians and pundits have continually misconstrued John Winthrop, Americans thought of themselves as a city upon a hill. I said that from the beginning, but actually it was from before the beginning, that Americans thought their cause the world's cause. As Tom Paine said in arguably the most important political pamphlet in American history, Common Sense, February 14, 1776, the cause of America is in great measure the cause of all mankind. Many circumstances hath and will arise which are not local but universal and through which the principles of all lovers of mankind are affected. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. The situation similar to the present hath not happened since the days of Noah. The birthday of a new world is at hand. Think of those phrases, the cause of all mankind, not local but universal, to begin the world over again. These are not simple political exhortations. These are prophecies of a national destiny that transcends, that transcends simple nationhood. They are spores that gave rise to the notion that America's cause was the cause of all mankind. That notion may now be withering, but it guided Americans for almost two centuries attempting to make the world safe for democracy. Let's spend a minute or two answering the question, who was Tom Paine? Who was this rabble-rouser that inspired a nation? As an excellent mini-biography of Tom Paine at Biography.com notes, Paine was a writer and pamphleteer. His common sense, written at a critical moment, stiffened American spines and led to the Declaration of Independence. Born in England in 1737, Paine received little formal education. At 13, he began working with his father as a staymaker the thick rope stays used on sailing ships. Although he and his father have been described as corset makers, most scholars believe this a slander spread by his political enemies. Regardless, his life in England counted many failures. Adding to his woes, Payne's wife and child both died in childbirth. His business went bankrupt. Sometime in the 1770s, he began to write political tracts. In one of those lucky flukes that frequently mark the stories of 18th century picaros, the heroes of picaresque novels, Paine met and befriended Benjamin Franklin, who told him to go to America. Franklin provided him with letters of introduction. In Philadelphia, Paine began writing. An early article, African Slavery in America, was a scathing condemnation of the African slave trade. Soon after Paine's arrival, the battles of Lexington and Concord happened. Paine argued in common sense that America should not simply revolt against taxation, but seek independence. During the American Revolution, Paine contributed to the Patriot cause with his 16 crisis papers. 
The first American Crisis was published December 19, 1776, and began, These are the times that try men's souls. Given a job as Secretary of the Continental Congress's Committee for Foreign Affairs, Paine lost it by divulging secret information. A gifted essayist, Paine also had a gift for bungling jobs. As a clerk of Pennsylvania's General Assembly, Paine observed that American troops were disgruntled because of low or no pay and scarce supplies. He began an initiative to raise what was needed. To advance his cause, he wrote The Public Good, which advocated for a national convention to replace the feeble Articles of Confederation with a strong central government under a continental constitution. In 1787, Paine returned to England, where he soon became fascinated with the French Revolution. He immediately and passionately supported the Revolution, which inspired him to write The Rights of Man, which moved beyond supporting the Revolution, to discussing the basic reasons for discontent in European society, railing against aristocratic society and Europe's inheritance laws. The British government banned the book. Paine was indicted for treason, although, already on his way to France, he avoided prosecution. While rallying for the revolution, Paine also supported efforts to save the life of deposed King Louis XVI. So when the radicals under Robespierre took power, Paine was in prison, or he narrowly escaped execution. In prison, he wrote The Age of Reason, which criticized institutionalized religion for perceived corruption and political ambition as he challenged the validity of the Bible. The book was controversial. The British government prosecuted anyone who tried to publish or distribute it. After his release from prison, Paine stayed in France, but ultimately returned to the United States at President Thomas Jefferson's invitation. Returning to the United States in 1802 or 1803, Paine found that his revolutionary work, influence, and reputation had mostly been forgotten, leaving only his status as a world-class rabble-rouser intact. Paine died alone at home on June 8, 1809. Only six mourners were present at his funeral. To drive home the point of his tarnished image as a mere political rabble-rouser, the New York citizen printed the following line in Paine's obituary. He had lived long, did some good, and much harm. For more than a century following his death, this was the historical verdict handed down on Paine's legacy. Finally, in January 1937, the Times of London turned the tide, referring to him as the English Voltaire, a view that has prevailed ever since with Paine now regarded as a founder of the American Revolution. Besides Paine, Alexander Hamilton attested to the universal relevance of the new American government and Federalist No. 1, saying that Americans seem to have been tasked with, by their conduct and example, to decide the important question whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. Hamilton continued, If the new constitution were not adopted, it might deserve to be considered as the general misfortune of mankind. Hamilton's arch-rival Thomas Jefferson made a more eloquent statement in a letter he sent to be read in Washington on July 4, 1826 the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson could not go in person. He was too old and too infirm. In fact, in one of the great coincidences in all of American history, both he and John Adams died on July 4, 1826. Here is Jefferson on the enduring and universal significance of American independence and American freedom. May it be to the world what I believe it will be, to some parts sooner, to others later, 
but finally to all, the signal of arousing men to burst the chains under which monkish ignorance and superstition had persuaded them to bind themselves and to assume the blessings and security of self-government. All eyes are opened or opening to the rights of man. The palpable truth that the mass of mankind has not been born with saddles on their backs nor a favored few booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. These are the grounds of hope for others. For ourselves, let the annual return of this day forever refresh our recollections of these rites in an undiminished devotion to them. another, not quite so benign, side to this universal relevance. First, in the developing United States themselves, it was the drive for westward expansion, the sense that it was their manifest destiny to be continental masters. Although there is some doubt he actually wrote it, or it was written by expansion advocate Jane Casneau, the phrase manifest destiny is usually credited to newspaper editor John O'Sullivan in 1845 as a defense of the Mexican War. Although it does not use the phrase, its first expression was in George Washington's circular letter to the states in June 1873. Washington wrote, The citizens of America, placed in the most enviable condition, as the sole lords and proprietors of a vast tract of continent, they are from this period to be considered actors on a most conspicuous theater, which seems peculiarly designed by providence for the display of human greatness and felicity. Manifest Destiny has three themes the special virtues of the American people and their institutions, the mission of the United States to redeem and to remake the West in the image of agrarian America, and an irresistible destiny to accomplish this essential duty, which led to Western expansionism and the stunted birth of American imperialism, for which early advocates like Teddy Roosevelt, William Randolph Hearst, and others did not blush. As detailed in The Winning of the West by Theodore Roosevelt, or the Morrill Act of 1862, which created the Homestead Act and the peopling of the Great West, the Pacific Railroad Act, connecting the East to California, which had been settled after the gold rush of 1849, Seward's Folly, the purchase of Alaska, the Indian Wars of the 1870s and 1880s, and, having now reached California, looking south to Cuba and the Spanish-American War, and then across the Pacific to the Philippines and the annexation of Hawaii. Speaking of the Spanish-American War, the annexation of Hawaii, and the Philippines, who was Admiral Firewind-Ready Gridley? Well, quickly, there is an eerie connection. He was Charles Vernon Gridley, commander of the only United States ship on the Great Lakes in the 1870s, the Michigan. Gridley settled in Erie for a while, married Harriet Vincent, cousin of Strong Vincent. Gridley is buried in Lakeview Cemetery. He has a square on West 6th Street and a school named after him. His claim to fame? It was to him that Admiral Dewey gave his famous order, You may fire when ready, Gridley. As my colleague at the Jefferson Educational Society, Charles Brock, points out in his Reclaiming the American Narrative, in practice, acting on the notion of the universal relevance of American ideals has led to both noble and, let's say, mixed results. Brock writes, 
The American narrative is that we are a chosen city on a hill, founded in part to welcome the oppressed of the world, to show how democracy and prosperity can work, and, when able, to defend others from oppression and tyranny as we have been freed ourselves. As for example, on the noble side, World War I, keeping the world safe for democracy, Pershing saying, Lafayette, we are here, Wilson's attempt at a League of Nations, Franklin D. Roosevelt's The Four Freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear, the Marshall Plan, the United Nations, the Dayton Peace Accords ending the Balkan Wars of the 1980s and 1990s. More ambiguously, the Bay of Pigs imbroglio, embarrassment about which led indirectly to the war in Vietnam, and then later, Desert Storm and the subsequent Operation Iraqi Freedom. These ambiguous actions resulted from American universalism's darker side, Americanism, best expressed most vividly on a red, white, and blue Cold War-era placard exhorting, Remember, you're an American. Live, think, act the American way. Americanism, the only ism worthy of loyalty, which gives rise to the notion of American exceptionalism, which, like American universalism, has both positive and negative connotation. On the positive side, as has been said, America may be exceptional, but its exceptional role is to serve as a model for the rest of mankind. As in the American Creed, Thomas Paine's Rights of Man, Jefferson's Empire of Liberty, and Lincoln's Last Best Hope of Earth. Historical Curiosity Who first said that America was, is exceptional? In a great irony, it was probably Joseph Stalin who in reply to an acolyte saying the United States would be hard to convert to communism, Stalin allegedly retorted, what makes America exceptional? American exceptionalism has three related ideas. American history is inherently different from that of other nations. The idea that America has a unique mission to transform the world. The sense that America's history and mission give it superiority over other nations. Most exponents of this mindset hearken back to the phrase, a city on a hill, which comes from John Winthrop's 1630 sermon, A Model of Christian Charity, in which Winthrop said, For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill, the eyes of all people are upon us. For most of the 400 years since Winthrop preached his sermon, it was ignored, but occasionally partisans of various stripe resurrected it in support of their nationalist or globalist claims. It became a trope for asserting American exceptionalism. In the late 20th century, it became associated with a militant American Eberalis mindset. Invokers of Winthrop simile meant it to validate another sort of American exceptionalism, a hubristic assertion of American national superiority, which can easily descend into that Americanism mentioned a moment ago, either a genuine appreciation for those civic virtues that define America at its best, freedom, equality, and opportunity, or a provincial, reductionist, love-it-or-leave-it exclusionary spirit that sees America as superior to all other cultures. For insights into this vision of America, confer either or both Newt Gingrich's A Nation Like No Other and Dick and Liz Cheney's Exceptional, Why the World Needs a Powerful America. American Exceptionalism. American Universalism. Two-edged sword speaking to what has from time to time led America and Americans to a kind of overdone civic boosterism of, hey, look at us, aren't we great, giving rise to what was once called the ugly American syndrome, that boorish, I'm better than anyone tourists schlepping across Europe and elsewhere, 
and other more serious international misadventures, forgetting that we are but one nation among nations, that it also speaks to what is best in the American character, as exemplified by the Marshall Plan, as exemplified by trying to make the world safe for democracy. And of course, what's best in the American spirit is our glittering, if slightly tarnished, ideals of freedom, equality, and opportunity. Our 244 years and counting experiment in self-government, demonstrating that people can, in fact, govern themselves, and are sometimes fractious, sometimes violent, but always progressing expansion of the we, of the we and Governor Morris's we the people. We forget it sometimes. Sometimes we need to be reminded. But in the end, we understand that Winfrey meant we're all in this together. We the people, a pluribus unum, out of many, one. The American tapestry, rich in its many threads and stories, freedom at home and abroad, challenging 21st century Americans to remember our ideals and to live up to, to live up to the better angels of our natures. I'm Andrew Roth, scholar in residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening. Next month on the American Tapestry Project, Freedom's Fault Lines, Tales of Race and Gender. Thank you.